Well, there's no place like home. Home is a place of comfort, of rest, and belonging. Even when you're on vacation, there comes a point when you wish that you were back home and in your own bed. Well, sometimes a person must leave their home for long periods of time. Uh, maybe they have been driven from their homes, or maybe uh, there's been a call of, or a sense of duty that has taken them from their home, like a soldier. But there's something beautiful about witnessing a homecoming scene. When a soldier steps off the plane to embrace his family, or when someone returns to the country that they grew up in. Well, as we have been following the life of Jacob, he has now been away from his homeland for some time. But his homeland is not just any homeland. God had promised the land of Canaan, especially to him, to be his and his offspring's inheritance, just as God had promised it to his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham. But since that promise, it has been 30 years. 30 years since God had promised the land to Jacob. 30 years that Jacob has been living away from the home of his fathers. We're wondering at this point, what happened to God's promises? And Jacob hasn't made anything easy for himself. He has continued a pattern of deception and sin that has created further difficulty for himself. So will Jacob's sin thwart the promises of God. With this passage, uh, at this point, we conclude the narrative of the life of Jacob. And it is a homecoming. Finally, a return home. Well, although Jacob does appear in later chapters, he plays only a supporting role in the account of Joseph's life. This chapter is indeed the bookend of Jacob's story. Now, if this were a story of Jacob's life alone, it would have concluded with a bunch of frayed ends and broken threads. But instead, it ends with resolution and a hope for the future. It shows that the line of God's promise remains unbroken. God has held the hand of Jacob and his family all the way through their journey, not because of their faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. Well, like Jacob, we are often wayward. In our walk with the Lord, we often stray into sin and experience its consequences. We may even despair that God's promises are not sufficient for us. But this passage shows us that God does not abandon you. Instead, he will faithfully lead you to your journey's end, which is to the eternal uh, it, which is to enter into the eternal home with him through faith in Jesus Christ. But before looking at this passage, it, it would be helpful to remind ourselves of where we are in the account of Jacob's life. Well, about 30 years have passed since Jacob was on the run from his angry, hairy big brother. And it has been about 30 years since he stopped for some shut-eye in the region of Luz. And it was that night that God appeared to him in a dream. And in that vision, God renewed to Jacob the covenant that he had made with Abraham and Isaac. God promised him the land of Canaan and promised him many offspring. God also promised to be with him wherever he went and to bring him back to the land of promise. Now, in response, uh, Jacob promised to return to the home of his father's. 
And so Jacob named that place Bethel, the house of God. But since then, since that uh, encounter with God, Jacob has continued to stray into a reliance on his own schemes and to show an indifference uh, to the problems of those under his care. But despite Jacob's thick-headedness, God has proven faithful to him. He has worked faith in Jacob's heart, even though it seems like we only see glimpses of it peeping through along the way. Well, last we saw, Jacob was not on his best behavior. In failing to properly care for his family, his daughter was taken and raped, and his sons slaughtered an entire innocent city out of revenge. And Jacob grew upset. He was not upset at the rape of his daughter. He was not upset at the revenge that his sons had taken. He was upset because he feared what would happen to himself when the other nations or the other cities came seeking retribution for his son's war crimes. So we ended chapter 34 with a Jacob said, his son said, argument. That's where we left off, but chapter 35 begins with God said. Jacob and his family had stagnated in Shechem. They had become like smelly garbage that the surrounding cities wanted to toss out. It is in this suffocating situation that God appears and says to Jacob, Go up to Bethel. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God is bringing Jacob's journey full circle. And in response to God's call, Jacob steps up and carries out his responsibility as the covenant head of his party. In verse 2, he tells his family and all those who are with him to put away their foreign gods. Now, this language is used elsewhere in the Old Testament uh, when the people of Israel turn back to God in repentance. Now, to turn to God, you must turn away and put away your idols. And, all the, and although uh, we should be scratching our head because the presence of idols in the camp shows, reflects on uh, Jacob's poor leadership, that he allowed idols in amongst his people in the first place. But nonetheless, he now exercises faith and he prepares his people for proper worship. He prepares his people to meet with the one true God. But there's another problem because Jacob's company has been defiled by the actions of his sons. Their genocide of an entire innocent city makes the whole family unclean. Thus, Jacob calls for them uh, to purify themselves, to ritually purify themselves so they might appear before God. But not only this, he has them actually change their clothes. Now, this was not just, uh, you guys stink, change your clothes. We're going to meet God, so you've got to look presentable. This is actually a symbol. It's a symbol of repentance. For putting off your old clothes to put on new clothes symbolizes the casting off of sin and the putting off, or the putting on of righteousness. See, re repentance is the re proper response to God's promises and calling. Paul gives this encouragement to Christians in Ephesians. He says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To worship God is to put away the idols in your hearts. The Christian life is defined by repentance. So when God calls and we walk with him, our life becomes a life of casting off our sin that so easily entangles us. And that is exactly what Jacob does here in response to God's call. And in response to Jacob's call to repentance, it's all hands on deck. People grab their idols and give them to Jacob, who in turn buries them. Now the text also says that they disposed of their earrings. Now, this is not saying that wearing earrings is evil. We would have some problems if that were the case. Rather, in the, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, earrings were often associated uh, as, with symbols of idol worship. They often carried spiritual uh, significance tied to false gods. And this is almost certainly the case here and the reason why they, they bury them alongside their idols. So now having disposed of the idols, they've been buried, uh, the people are now prepared to enter into the presence of God. Jacob and company uh, depart from Shechem and they head for Bethel. However, remember that the surrounding cities are almost certainly not happy with Jacob's clan. They just wiped out their neighbor. They wiped him off the face of the map. So if they got the chance, these cities would certainly take the opportunity to attack and plunder this small upstart family. But notice that what Jacob doesn't do, he doesn't try to scheme his way out. He doesn't flee in fear. Instead, in what is a step of faith, he trusts God for his protection and follows his call. This is an evident sign of God's work in growing his faith. Through these difficulties, Jacob has been learning to trust the Lord. And sure enough, God keeps them safe. God sends a great terror upon the cities as Jacob passes by, so that they are unable and unwilling to pursue them. God's promises will not be foiled by armies or by nations. And God brings them safely to Bethel where Jacob erects an altar. And he names the place El Bethel, meaning God of the house of God. Here he, he highlights not just the location, not just the physical place, but the, the person, the God who he met there all those years ago in his hour of need. And it's at this point that we have a brief aside. We are told in verse 8 that Deborah, Jacob's mother, Rebekah's nurse, has died. Now, the first mention of Deborah is found in Genesis 24. Uh, when Rebekah left her family to become Isaac's wife, Deborah accompanied her as her nurse. But we might be wondering, what is she doing here with Jacob? Well, back in chapter 27, as Jacob is preparing to flee from Esau, his mother promises that one day she would send for him so that he might return safely. Now, it is likely then uh, that at some point, Rebecca sent her trusted nurse to look, after Dave, uh, to look after Jacob so that he might return, that she might uh, care for him. 
Now, Jacob never got to see his mother again after he left home. Deborah is the last echo of her influence and of her love for Jacob. The tree over her grave was named Alan Bakuth, the tree of weeping. Deborah's mention reminds us of Rebekah's absence. Because of her and Jacob's sin against his brother, they were separated and never reunited. And although Jacob has returned home by God's faithful promises, his past sins still bear fruit of sorrow in his life. And sometimes we can experience the sorrow of sin's consequences. And it can be tempting in such times to despair of God's promises. We despair that, we may despair that God is against us. But if you trust in Christ, then you can be certain that he has taken the judgment upon himself. The judgment for your sin has been dealt with by him. And thus God can never be against you. But that does not mean that our sin does not also have natural consequences. When Jacob and his mother deceived Isaac and cheated Esau, the natural result was that Jacob had to flee his home, that he and his mother were separated. And he experienced a number of other sufferings along the way that he otherwise would not have experienced. But even through that, God never left Jacob, and his promises never faltered. God's promise that he would be with Jacob wherever he went was not nullified by Jacob's faltering faith. And God even uses Jacob's self-inflicted difficulty to grow his faith, to draw him closer to himself. So how much greater can you and I have knowing that Jesus' obedience was perfect on your behalf? That his death fully paid for you and my sin. Thus, when we despair, we do not run from the Lord. We turn to him in faith, full of confidence. Well, Deborah's death and burial is a sorrowful moment, but at the same time, it sounds a hopeful note. Because rather than being buried in a foreign land, Deborah is buried in the land of promise. Deborah's burial in Bethel means that she is home. And the tree of weeping would be a landmark that would be identified and remembered by, by generations to come within Israel. It showed that God was faithful to his promises, that he had brought Jacob back to the land, and that he would return Israel and establish them in the land as well. So this, uh, with this uh, incident um, having happened, God now appears to Jacob again. Bethel 2.0. For after, uh, he appears to him after Jacob has come from Padan Aram, the, the region where Jacob had been serving Laban at. Uh, and, and at this point, uh, rather than appearing to Jacob in a dream, he actually appears to him in a theophany, a visible manifestation. Uh, there is a heightened um, uh, a heightened um, aspect to this meeting over Bethel meeting 1.0, 30 years prior. And God reiterates Jacob's name change. Remember that in their wrestling match, uh, their uh, nocturnal wrestling match, uh, Jacob renamed Jacob. Remember that, or sorry, God renamed Jacob. 
Remember that Jacob means deceiver. And God changes his name, which is not merely a, a, a meaningless thing. In changing his name, God changes his identity. No longer will Jacob be known as deceiver. He'll be known as the recipient of God's promises. He'll be known as Israel. Now, in reiterating it, God hasn't forgotten that he already named Jacob Israel several chapters ago. Instead, he repeats himself to remind Jacob and confirm to him Jacob's identity that he is the heir of God's promise. This name change is then the beginning of God's covenant renewal. God goes on to reiterate the promises of the covenant, which he had given to Jacob at Bethel, meeting 1.0. But now he speaks in a new clarity that Jacob has not yet heard himself. For in the first Bethel encounter, God spoke only of, of offspring and families coming from Jacob in general. But now he gives greater detail. Notice that he mentions uh, nations and kings will come from Jacob. Now uh, God's plan for a socio-political nation, the nation of Israel, with its own land and domain, is coming uh, into picture. It's come, beginning to come into focus. And in the, in the creation of Israel, uh, God will now institute new types and shadows that will point us and Israel to Christ. For Jesus will be the true and everlasting king that will come from Jacob's lineage. And Jesus will lead his people into the new Jerusalem of heaven. So these things are beginning to take shape now in this, this covenant renewal with Jacob. But in this Bethel encounter 2.0, God brings Jacob full circle. God's faithfulness is at the beginning and at the end of Jacob's life. After God has spoken, there is no question that Jacob is the heir of the Abrahamic promise. And having spoken with Jacob, God departs. And this is significant. His, his glory presence is not permanent. Uh, to commemorate the event, Jacob builds an altar and pours a drink offering over it. Now, one day, God would dwell in Israel permanently in the temple on Mount Zion. And in our day, God dwells with us in, our, in the church by his spirit. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of God. But for now, in Jacob's time, this altar is just a mini Mount Zion, a little pile of rocks serving as a reminder that God had been there and as a promise that he would one day establish Israel in the land and would one day be, uh, one day be their God and dwell with them in the land. But right now, at this point, God has departed and we have the altar as a reminder and a promise. Well, at, at some point after this, Jacob pulls up the tent stakes and he begins his journey south. Uh, and verse 16 mentions that along the way, uh, Rachel goes into labor. And as was common in the ancient world, uh, she underwent, underwent a difficult labor with grave complications. Um, she was uh, dying, giving birth. And as she was dying, 
come. She gave birth to a son. Now flashback. When she gave birth to her first son, she named him Joseph. Joseph means to add. And after giving birth to Joseph, she prayed to God, asking, God, may you add to me another son. And here, God answers her prayer. Benjamin. But ironically, remember another thing Rachel said. For when Rachel was barren, she told Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Well, these words come back to haunt her because it is ironic. Uh, the, very, the very act of birthing her son is what kills her. And with her final breaths, she names him Ben-Oni, meaning son of my sorrow. But Jacob, in a testimony to his deep love for Rachel, he names him son of my right hand. Indeed, Rachel was his love, was like his right hand. And many years later on his deathbed, Jacob would recall his sorrow at losing Rachel. The sting of her loss he felt deeply even then. But as was the case with Deborah, this death also marks a hopeful note. Rachel's tomb is in the promised land, and it will be seen by generations to come. And as the text says, it can be seen to this day. And this would have been a reminder to the Israelites as they've uh, come through the exodus and are now entering the promised land. That was the original audience, to see that God has established us in the land he brought Jacob and his family home, and he will bring us home. And it is significant, this, this birth is significant, because Benjamin is the first and only child of Jacob uh, to be born in the promised land. So with deaths and now births taking place in the land, the belongingness of homecoming is further established. And in a foreshadowing, the place of Benjamin's birth, um, well, it foreshadows the nation of Israel, uh, because the place of his birth is located within the future land allotment that would be given to the tribe of Benjamin. So here we have a foreshadowing of the nation of Israel. But mourning is lost. Jacob, uh, now Israel, now called Israel, uh, continues his journey back home to his father's. And to his father. And Jacob reunites with his father Isaac in Hebron. Now Hebron was the land of their family sojourning. It has significance because all three of the patriarchs, now Jacob completing that, have sojourned in that land. I um, mean, at this point, the narrative, it, it telescopes the life, life of Isaac um, because Isaac lived 12 more years after James, Joseph was sold into captivity. But the reason that the narrator does this, it, it condenses here to highlight uh, the succession of the promise to Jacob. Jacob is the next patriarch. At the death of Isaac, the mantle of the promise is clearly taken up by Jacob. And so with this uh, closing comment of, of hope, um, uh, we also see that Esau and Jacob truly are reconciled. For here we find them meeting peaceably beside the grave of their father. A beautiful note of hope and reconciliation. And yet, before Jacob's story concludes, we get an abrupt change in tone. Although there's been sorrow mixed in, uh, the majority of the chapter has focused on the homecoming of Jacob and his family. And even the moments of sorrow solidify the hope 
and confidence that Israel, uh, that Israel is back home. But then we get this jarring statement in verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now we are not sure why Reuben committed such a horrendous act. Some commentators suggest that he was asserting his place as the heir to his father, sensing Jacob's weakness. He may have also been making a jab at Rachel, his mother's arch-rival. By sleeping with her maidservant, he may have been asserting the dominance of his mother Leah's line over and above the brothers uh, that came from Rachel. Whatever the case, it says Jacob sees, and he does not forget, for when he later blesses his sons on his deathbed, he withholds the inheritance of the firstborn from Reuben because of this act. And he also skips over Simeon and Levi because of their Shechem massacre, thus giving the preeminence to Judah, the fourthborn, the fourthborn in line. Judah would become the tribe of kings. Now, the list of sons in verses 23 to 26 also foreshadows the strife that is to come. Because instead of being ordered oldest to youngest, the list is ordered by mother. This reveals, reveals the fracturing that is occurring between these brothers. The sin of Joseph, Jacob uh, in taking multiple wives is bearing rotten fruit. His favoritism of Rachel and neglect of Leah has sown seeds of resentment amongst the brothers, which will grow bitter fruit in the account of Joseph, where we will see more brotherly strife. Now, this is a dissonant note for us to hear in our ears after this heartwarming return home. We saw Jacob and his family demonstrate repentance as they came up to worship at Bethel. We saw God renew his covenant with Jacob, giving him his promises. But then we have this gross act of sin. Not only that, we see the effects of the covenant patriarch, Jacob's sin, causing deep sorrow and begetting more cycles of sin. From this, it is evident that nothing magical happened when uh, Jacob and his family crossed the borders of the promised land. Nothing magical happened to reverse the fall in Adam's first sin. This sour ending of Jacob's narrative shows us that a solution to sin is required. While many of the threads of Jacob's life were tied together neatly in this bookend, this homecoming, there is one glaring loose end. For how can anyone stay in Bethel, the house of God, if they are sinful? And under the Mosaic Covenant, the whole land becomes the dwelling place of God. And God eventually kicks Israel out of the land because of their unrepentant sin. So sin must be dealt with. But we see in the New Testament that God ties up this loose end and every other thread of the story together in Jesus Christ. God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and now to Jacob all find their fulfillment in the Son. And the Son of God became man and dwelt among us. 
By his death, we are purified of our sin. And when the Father calls us and saves us, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus takes our dirty clothes of sin in exchange for his clean robes of righteousness. Thus, dressed in the spotless covering of Christ, we can ascend the hill to worship in Bethel, the house of God. And this is what we do every week. Every week, we come and ascend the heavenly, uh, the heavenly Mount Zion on the Lord's Day to worship God. And every week, God speaks to us through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And every week, he renews us and reminds us of his promises. The promises that he has purchased for you. The promise that he has given you a new name in Christ. The promise that he will bring you home. The promise that he will finish the good work in you that he started. Like Jacob, we are sojourners in this world. We do not yet see God. We still wage war against sin and fail daily. Our life is a struggle of repentance and putting our old self to death. But one day, Christ will return. And he will usher us into the new creation, a heavenly Jerusalem, where there will be no more sin and death. The whole world will be God's dwelling place at home, and we will truly be at home. So, in this chapter, we have come to the conclusion of Jacob's life. He was a deeply flawed man. But looking at ourselves, we find that we are no less need of a Savior Throughout Jacob's life, God was faithful to him. God loved him. And God's promises were not stopped by Jacob's sin. Jacob had a faith in God, and God counted that faith to him as righteousness. So in light of that, like Jacob, let us live a life of faith and repentance in response to God's call. Let us trust in God's unfailing promises of salvation to us, which is found in Jesus Christ alone. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised it to us is faithful.